I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones and today I'm talking to Rupert Beale, who's a clinician scientist group leader at the Francis Crick Institute. And Rupert's written in the latest issue of the LRB about the novel coronavirus. Um, and we're talking on the phone rather than together in the studio or on Skype um, because I'm under quarantine in Italy at the moment. Um, and Rupert, you also are not at work today, is that right? That's right. I've got uh, a mild upper respiratory tract infection. I suspect not the uh, novel coronavirus for various reasons, but um, one has to be cautious about these things. I'd like to begin, if I may, by reading a few sentences from your piece. Which are, These are probably the three most alarming sentences in it, but um, let's begin with them anyway. In countries where rapid testing and isolation do not happen, the disease will at its peak rapidly overwhelm the ability of hospitals to cope and the case fatality rates will be much higher. The global case fatality rate is above 3% at the moment, and if, reasonable worst-case scenario, 30 to 70% of the 7.8 billion people on Earth are infected, that means between 70 and 165 million deaths. It would be the worst disaster in human history in terms of total lives lost. Um, now, you wrote that a week ago. It's now, we're recording on the afternoon of Thursday, the 12th of March. Are you feeling more or less optimistic about our, our chances of avoiding 100 million deaths? Well, I, I, I think I very carefully um, caveated that in the sentence immediately after um, by suggesting that everybody expects that people will comply with reasonable public health uh, you know, measures yeah. put in by competent authorities. Um, so I, I don't think anyone's quite expecting it to be on that scale. And there are reasons to believe that... Um, uh, we are likely to get on top of this virus at some point in the future. So I, I don't personally expect it to be that bad. It's important to have a sense of the scale of it, because if, if everyone really did operate on a, a business as usual uh, basis, then I think that would be a, reason, a reasonable expectation uh, about the, the um, global burden of, of deaths over time. Now, I think even the United States and Iran are not quite... Uh, in, in that bracket at, at, at the present time. Um, but it, it shows that this is something that really needs to be taken extremely seriously, and, and that is becoming abundantly clear. Am I more yeah. or less optimistic? Um, I think that the, the piece so far is holding up quite well in terms of the predictions that you might make from it. Uh, at the present time, countries such as uh, South Korea, which is an example I mentioned. I could also potentially have mentioned Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, and obviously, at least in the later phases, when they really knew what they were dealing with, uh, China, um, have all successfully um, reduced the number of um, new cases to uh, very small numbers, some cases single digits, and, and you're talking about quite large populations. Uh, the big, there are all sorts of unknowns. So one great unknown is what will happen when restrictions in those countries are lifted. Will there be a second wave? Will there be potentially a third wave? That's certainly possible, given what we know about the epidemiology of other diseases. 
Um, the, the sort of uh, hopeful scenario is that the virus will be quite sensitive to climate and temperature and in places where um, it is warmer and drier, then it will transmit less well. At present, we can't say that. There's not evidence for that. Um, but, you know, that, that is, as it were, the more optimistic uh, scenario. The sort of more pessimistic um, end of things has been exhibited in Lombardy, where, uh, as you'll be aware, the healthcare service is under extreme strain and, um, you know, rationing of um, uh, ventilatory support is having to be carried out and that's resulting in a very high uh, death rate. Uh, now, there may be other factors at work in, in Italy. Um, uh, it, it may well be that the initial testing and isolation was not carried out efficiently. I think at the moment we, we, we're not sure. Um, but I think what we're very worried about here in this country, in, in, in the UK right now, is whether or not our NHS is fully prepared, whether it can cope over the coming weeks and months with what will undoubtedly be a high burden of uh, disease. Yeah, because I mean, I've read somewhere, I think that the, the number of intensive care beds is per 100,000 population is twice as high in Italy as it in the, is in the UK. I think that's a, that may be right per capita for Lombardy. I'm not sure about yeah. for the for it, Italy as a whole, that, that could be the case. Um, you can expand uh, capacity and in intensive care in terms of sort of machines and beds. The question is, can you expand in terms of staff um, and in, you know, other supplies that you might need? Um, so, for example, you know, one option would be to cancel elective uh, operating procedures. So that gives you access to more ventilators. I, I expect we will see that. My, my suspicion is that this will be announced in, in the near future. Uh, that yeah. doesn't get around the problem of not having intensive care physicians and enough intensive care nurses so there we may be struggling and in Lombardy at the minute certainly that I mean they're putting in non-specialist doctors to help to the extent that they can we expect that um, uh, other physicians with uh, other doctors with um, some experience will be will be called in so for example um, people who are experts in respiratory medicine or, or, or usually just practice anesthesia I expect will be um, expected to help out where necessary I think that's likely to be occurring in the United Kingdom, but we don't know that. I mean, it's, we're still dealing with a large amount of uncertainty here. Yeah, I mean, simply looking at the the shape of the graph of new cases, which appears to be exponential in the UK as it as it was in Italy, it appears to be following a very similar trajectory to Italy, but fourteen days or so behind. Does that seem right, or is that again, it's hard to say? Absolutely right. Um, I wouldn't like to exactly speculate on that. Um, I'm not myself an epidemiologist. Um, it, it, it's certainly not far off as a prediction. If you try to fit, and this would be very naive modelling, if you try to yeah. fit an exact exponential curve in the United Kingdom over the past few days, we're a little bit behind that. In other words, you would have slightly fewer cases than you might naively extrapolate Um but that, of course, is complicated by um, the way in which testing uh, occurs. So if you test more, of course, you will discover more cases and you're likely to discover more mild cases because uh, patients who are extremely unwell are much more likely to be offered a test. And, of course, you will never test the entirety of the population all of the time. Um, we are ramping up the testing capacity I think in a way, one of the most worrying things I've seen, and I hope that people will move to address this very rapid, 
rapidly is from uh, uh, colleagues who are actually operating these tests that they are essentially under strength in terms of the uh, biomedical support staff they need to operate this. And I don't think I'm breaking any confidences when I say that um, uh, we may well uh, be asked as people who are essentially molecular biologists, colleagues who are essentially just molecular biologists and not biomedical scientists exactly, but who can operate the machines effectively, may well be asked to contribute to that effort. And that, by the way, will be completely appropriate. We're in a pretty difficult situation here. So that's the thing that, as you mentioned earlier, that South Korea is an example who, who are handling it well. That you say showing what a medium-sized country with a democratic government should do. And they quickly ramped up their testing capacity, educated the public about self-isolation, shut down large gatherings, restricted travel, increased hospital capacity. Um, do you think that the public in the UK are being adequately educated about self-isolation? Um, it depends what you mean by adequately. Uh, I, I, sus- I, I mean, I suspect the answer to that is, in short, no. I think mm. we've got a lot of work to do. Um, colleagues who are in general practice are, you, you know, these are anecdotes. So, you know, yeah. of course, famously not evidence, but these are anecdotes. Sure. They're saying that they are still getting patients, for example, who have upper respiratory tract symptoms that come in and, you know, essentially don't think that the rules apply to them, either sometimes by outright lying uh, to the the triage um uh, we are seeing cases of people really not understanding what it's meant by self-isolate and i think the government may end up changing its changing its messaging on this because self-isolate is a is the sort of term that clinicians would understand um stay at home don't go out don't see your friends that might be a sort of more um prosaic way of of, of expressing the same concept um so I think we do have quite a lot of work to do there. Um, and uh, it's also important to educate frontline NHS staff. So I, I think that uh, at present, um, there's still a lot of work to be done at the front line in terms of accident and emergency, in terms of how you uh, triage patients to make sure that um, suspected or possible cases are not sort of left, you know, with everyone else. Um Mm-hmm. And this is complicated by the fact that, you know, we have very complicated um, hospital services run. You have, you know, quite a number of patients who are um, immunosuppressed. So, for example, I work in uh, uh, kidney medicine, renal medicine, where we have, for example, transplant patients who are immunosuppressed. Um, it's likely, very likely, I think, from the reports coming from colleagues in Italy, that these patients will be at higher risk. Um, in a way, we don't really want these patients to end up in the same sort of space as uh, patients who have potential, um, you know, COVID-19. And and at the moment, I think hospitals are are struggling to make sure that the pathways are correctly implemented so that we don't get get the potential of of, of spread, you know, to staff and, and within hospitals. So I think we probably have a lot of work to do at the front line of the NHS right now as well. Yeah, I mean, the BBC today had an interview with David Halpin, who they said is a government science advisor. I, I believe he's a psychologist, not an infectious disease expert, um, and a member of the behavioural insights team, David Cameron's nudge unit, who said that the plan was to cocoon at-risk groups while herd immunity, herd immunity is achieved in the rest of the population. I mean, obviously, the long-term goal is herd immunity through vaccination and everything, but is that... Does that seem sensible to you? I've only seen a clip of that interview. Um, yeah. I think at the moment we don't know 
if herd immunity will be easily achievable because it's not known what the long-term immune response to this virus will be. Uh, we know pretty much for certain um, from the experience in China that there is short-term immunity to the virus. In other words, once you've been infected with the virus and you've recovered, you're unlikely to be infected again within a short time frame. Um, mm -hmm. The experience, what's known with other coronaviruses, so, so many coronaviruses that have been circulating for a long time, which only cause the common cold, can reinfect patients, that is known. So it's, it's, I think it's probably at the moment too early to speculate on whether um, herd immunity is going to be achievable um, in, in the way that you might expect herd immunity to be achieved, for example, with influenza. Obviously, the long-term goal, uh, implementation of what we hope would eventually become an effective vaccine, would be herd immunity. Um, and of course, it is sensible to um, protect um, patients that you would predict to be vulnerable, for example, elderly patients, patients with respiratory conditions, patients with cardiac conditions, and uh, patients who are immunosuppressed. Of course, you would wish to protect um, these groups. Uh, but whether or not um, uh, a strategy of achieving herd immunity is going to be um, optimal, I think, is very, um, very much up uh, in the air at the moment. Uh, it, it's, it's really not clear that that's likely to work. And let, let's talk a bit now about the virus itself. Um, I suppose <laughs> what is a coronavirus is one way to, to begin. Well, um, in, in virus speak, in molecular biology speak, we would call it a, a positive sense RNA virus. So that means that um, it's made up of its genome is RNA rather than DNA. And we call it positive sense because the genome is read in the same orientation as our own uh, RNAs, you know, the, the RNAs that we use to make proteins. Um, and that's in contrast to negative sense RNA viruses, for example, influenza, where the genome is the, is the opposite orientation. And this has some quite important consequences for the biology uh, of the virus, um, one of which is that um, it produces a lot of its proteins in large sort of blobs, and those proteins then need to be chopped up by uh, enzymes, protease enzymes that the virus itself encodes. Those proteases can be the target of antiviral drugs, and this has been um, this has been achieved successfully, very successfully, I might say, for hepatitis C. There are sort of important consequences to understanding the, as it were, the molecular uh, biology of the virus. So that's one thing to say about it. The other thing to say, which I, I mentioned in my piece, is this is a very, very large virus. It's very complicated. And compared with other smaller RNA viruses, the mutation rate is lower. So you wouldn't predict, not that predictions are always 100% accurate, but you wouldn't predict... Mm -hmm that it would evolve rapidly to, um, to sort of resist attempts at vaccination in the way that influenza does. So right. it would be a reasonable expectation that if we can generate a vaccine, even if it's a vaccine that you need to take multiple times to be really effective, we would have a reasonable expectation that we might be able to, you know, very substantially inhibit the spread of this virus um, through a program of mass vaccination. But we're you know, not, not there yet. No, of course. And developing a vaccine will take a minimum year, two years, if it's even even possible. Well, if you went through, as it were, the sort of traditional process of generating a vaccine, um, then a year would be an absolutely unrealistic timescale. Mm -hmm. um, 
clearly we're in a very different situation to any situation that we've faced as a species for at least a hundred years. So um, we're in rather uncharted territory, and I think people will be wishing to accelerate um, vaccine trials by proceeding, for example, where reasonable to sort of straight to inhuman trials. Uh, that's in space human uh, yeah. uh, trials, um, uh, rather than you know testing on animal models first, which would be a, which would be a traditional way of doing this. This comes with its own risks, but you know one has to. Uh, balance risk against benefit here. So, I mean, it, if we are exceptionally lucky, then we'll have a, a vaccine which is useful in a year or, or or slightly more. But but I think we we have to be very lucky for that to be um, realistic. And in terms of these new so-called novel new coronaviruses that that SARS and MERS, um, and presumably people began working on a on a SARS vaccine in two thousand and three. What would have happened to that work? And would that work be useful now? The work that's been done on SARS has been extremely useful in an awful lot of ways. So so first of all, at a public health level, it's notable that those countries which had experience of the original SARS outbreak, I suspect, have been much better prepared for something like this to happen subsequently. Um, And there's more awareness, I think, in those countries, you know, in the in the public that you're de- dealing with something which is potentially much, much more dangerous than, than a standard, um, you know, seasonal influenza. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of one aspect of it. Um, w- we understand a lot about the biology of the virus because of understanding SARS. Um, because SARS sort of came and went, uh, there was never the opportunity to, to develop an effective um, you know, vaccine, which was, would, would have been proven to work. What there was was the ability for um, uh, for virologists to understand the virus better. And we have um, what are called reverse genetic systems, quite difficult to use, but 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 you can you can manipulate these kinds of viruses now, which may help both with um, working out uh, things like the pathogenesis of the virus and also um, with um, sort of understanding how you might develop uh, vaccines. So the other thing to say is that there has been some remarkably rapid progress in understanding some of the molecular details of the virus. So there's already a structure, for example, of the main viral uh, protein that it uses to to enter cells. You'll have seen the reports from uh, Google DeepMind where they've used, um, you know, their protein folding prediction algorithms to give us a reasonable idea of what a lot of the other proteins in, in the virus look like. And that will be helpful further down the line for people to look at um, yeah, potential antiviral drugs and for uh, people looking at developing antibodies to different parts of the, the virus, which may give us a handle on the, um, on the right sort of strategies for vaccination. So, you know, we, we do have a lot of tools that, that were developed partly in response to the original sort of SARS outbreak but um, you know the, the amount of funding, of course, is, is is limited, and you know SARS came and it went, and uh, a lot of people, you know, didn't continue to work on it. But presumably, the fund the funding is available now. It, it will be to give perhaps listeners an idea of, of these things. You know, we want to be working with the virus now, but the number one thing, of course, you need to ensure is safety. So. You can't just sort of walk into a laboratory and, and, and open a vial of it. That would be completely 
freezing. Or, yeah, with a dirty tissue and say, here we go. Well, indeed. So you have to have proper biological containment facilities, which fortunately we do have in, in the Crick Institute. But then, of course, you need to train people adequately. People need mm-hmm. to know exactly what they're doing. People need to be able to manipulate um, and, and to work with le- less pathogenic viruses first um, and then move you know, when you're sort of confident that you're doing everything in the right way, uh, only then subsequently to to the you know, more seriously pathogenic viruses. Um, and of course, there aren't at the moment the tools that we'd want to, 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 to look at this virus. Of course, they'll all be being generated. Um, and so, you know, this research is going to take time. And of course, if you're asking people to stop what they're doing and work on something else, well, you know, virologists have lives too. And you can't say, well, you know, we're going to give you funding for a year and, uh, you know, good luck um, after mm-hmm. that. Uh, even though, you know, you'd like all the results to be generated as soon as possible, you have to put in place already long-term funding for this. And, and actually that isn't something that I've seen yet um, from the UK government, uh, something that I hope we will be seeing uh, in the future. Because if you're asking people to say, you know, stop what they're doing and, and, and spend all their time and effort on, on this new virus, you know, they, they have to be confident that in five years' time when, um, you know, the world's attention might be somewhere else, um, that they still have a, a job and, and they can feed their family, you know. So, um, you know, there are human factors at, at play here. Um, and you said in your piece that you're, you're trying to work out which human proteins SARS-CoV-2 needs to replicate. So that does mean you are studying it? We're in the process of setting this up. Um, so, like I said, the number one thing is is safety. So, at the moment, we're training staff to to work in the in the facility, um, and we're making arrangements um, for the virus to be worked on in a safe way. Um, I, I should say that this is very much a collaboration uh, between ourselves and um, scientists at the Roslyn Institute uh, in in Edinburgh. Um, we were lucky in the sense that we had already a long-standing collaboration on influenza uh, with a colleague who works in infectious disease in in um in uh, intensive care but particularly looking at infections that arise uh, in intensive care patients and patients that come to intensive care with serious viral infections and you know so this is very much a collaborative project and there'll be expertise from from both institutes that we bring to bear on this project uh you, you know um we're, we're in a situation where um we ourselves are unsure about the, the, uh, the, the sort of medium term of, of where this is all going. And um, we're just sort of trying to do what we can. Uh, and our expertise is in the cell biology and, and in this particular method for finding targets. So that, that's what we're doing. I wouldn't like to claim it's the most important thing uh, right now to be researching. I mean, it's important that you have a whole variety of things uh, being explored. But... Yeah, well, presumably you have as many labs as possible researching as many different things as possible because who's to say where that's right and 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 like i say you know that there may be sort of short-term situations where laboratory scientists who would normally be working on something completely different but simply because they can operate you know a a quantitative pcr machine um effectively may be asked to help with the biomedical uh scientists who um you know running the tests and so on and the pcr machine is what what you use for looking at dna well the, the rna of the virus so yes um the, the test is based on detecting the the viral uh, genome, um, and, and and you do this by doing what we call a, is a quantitative PCR, and, and there are all sorts of sort of quality controls that you put into that to make sure 
that you're reducing the chance of a false negative or false positive. Um, and in terms of the of the testing that is available now, and they've developed new ones, is that right? I was reading that there's a one that they developed in Israel that they're now building in Rome, which is cheaper. And so there are other ways of detecting the virus. So one thing you can do is you can have an antibody test, which um, tests for the presence of viral proteins. And the advantage of that is you could have it um, as more or less point of use. So in other words, you know, you, you would spit on a, on a little stick, and a little bit like a pregnancy test, and then, you mm-hmm. know, get a, a, a blue line or not. Um, it's very likely that such tests would be extremely useful, um, especially in settings where um, there's not the availability of these uh, more complicated tests. Um, they're likely to be, on the whole, a bit less accurate, but that doesn't mean they're not useful. Um, mm-hmm. because you could get the information instantly and you, and you could risk stratify people in a rational way. So there are companies all over the place which are working on these. Certainly there's one in the UK um, that we've been in contact with, and I, I think these are serious people who, who have a you know a reasonable chance of, of making a very useful device. Um, but again, this isn't instant. This is, this is going to be something which takes time. And just having a test, well... You know, if the, if the sensitivity and the specificity of the test are not good enough, you can cause more harm than you do good by testing. So you need to make sure that you've got a reasonable degree of sensitivity and specificity before you start running such a test out. And that, you know, that is something which is going intrinsically to take a, a fair amount of time. And the, and the tests which have been done at the minute, so the, so the total, I did have the number, so I've not lost it, the, the total number of tests that have been carried out in the UK in terms of how accurate they are and how the chance of false positives and false negatives, is that how accurate is it? The chance of a false positive or false negative does depend upon exactly who it is that you're testing. So, for example, if you have someone who has a family member who's known to have um, the condition and then they develop a high fever, a sore throat, and they start to have a cough, then what we would say is that the prior probability that they have the condition is very high. So in that circumstance, a positive test would very strongly confirm that they clearly had the condition. If you just pluck someone from the street who has no symptoms at all, then a positive test would be less predictive. Now that said, that from the from the qPCR tests that are being doing that are being done, the ones that are being used at the moment, I'm led to believe they are in fact very sensitive and specific. So false positives are quite rare, and false negatives are also quite quite rare. But that doesn't mean to say they couldn't happen. And, and so you always have to interpret these statistics with, um, you know, a degree of caution. What is clear is that there will be some people who have mild symptoms who do not meet the criteria uh, for testing that do, in fact, have the condition. Uh, and that that's, I think, at the moment, um, perhaps one of the main uh, difficulties and, and, and dangers that we face. And one of the important things is that people who have in that situation, who have mild symptoms, need to stay at home, not see people, because even if they're not, we can't test them, partly because we're limited to how many tests you can do and you have to presumably focus. Another reason it's crazy just to pull random people off the streets and test them is because they probably don't have it and you're wasting the testing capacity on, on people. So that if you have mild symptoms but you don't qualify for a test, you need to stay at home anyway. Uh, that is true. In an ideal world, we would very much like actually to be sampling people who are totally asymptomatic, 
because it would give us a very good idea of how uh, how many patients you know actually do have the condition and are asymptomatic. Um, yeah. they, 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 my understanding is this was done to some extent in in China, in, in Wuhan and other places, and they were not detecting a high number of patients who were truly asymptomatic. Um, so uh, it, it will be interesting to see if the data holds up in the United Kingdom. But of course, at the moment, when you've got limited testing capacity, it's absolutely right. You have to focus that on on the on the you know cases that you think it's most likely that someone will have this. My understanding is that the general advice is changing at the moment, and um, there will be quite a strong uh, advice that if you have even mild symptoms, so for example, just a cough, you will be uh, told to stay at home, i.e., self-isolate, and, and you know that would seem to me to be a sensible uh, thing to implement, probably yesterday or, or even before, but but but. It, it, it looks as though from the news reports that that will be something which is, um, uh, you know, started to be pushed by the government as of now. And maybe this isn't a question you feel you can answer, but the the situation that we have initially now where if you leave your house, you have to carry a, a piece of paper that you've downloaded from the Ministry of the Interior website that you've signed stating the time you've left the house, your reason for leaving the house. Um, if the police stop you and you don't have a you don't have a good reason for being out in theory you can face 12 years in jail i mean i doubt that will happen to anyone um and though those conditions because of the the situation in lombardy is is that something that we're likely to see in the uk two weeks from now i'm not a politician um and that would be a difficult um political uh, calculation uh, to make if 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 such a thing were necessary then I would advocate that the government do, in fact, put such, you know, quote, draconian, unquote, measures in place. Mm-hmm. Because the alternative of, you know, the healthcare being uh, in this country being sort of completely unable to cope uh, is is too horrible to contemplate, actually. Um, if, if you get to a situation where the healthcare system is totally overwhelmed, then, it, of course, it's not just patients with COVID-19 that will suffer. It'll be absolutely everybody else with any other kind of, uh, medical condition as well and and so you know necessary measures to um, protect public health in that sense they may well need to be enforced in in um, uh, countries such as the United Kingdom whether our sort of political uh, class will have the gumption to do that or not I think is a, is a different matter because initially in a sense they were only able to do it politically or, or that would be their excuse, or they, they didn't do it until after the the health system in Lombardy had been overrun, and that in one part of the country that was already the case. And then in other parts of Italy where, I mean, where I am, you know, in Umbria, 900,000 people live in the region, there are 48 total cases. As we are now under quarantine, under lockdown, whatever you call it, it seems very unlikely that it will spread here. So, in a sense, those measures are protecting us. But they, if they had been introduced earlier in Lombardy, they would have protected people who have who have died. So there is an argument for a, a medical argument for introducing those measures sooner. Before, I mean, not to wait until your your health service is overrun. But it's not clear if that's politically possible. There are, but we also don't know how long people will uh, continue to abide by uh, the rules, as it were. 
one, one great unknown is what happens after you lift the restrictions. Um, it's very unlikely for all sorts of reasons that without a program of mass vaccination, we're going to completely eliminate this disease. And of course, as we've discussed, you know, we're a long way away from that uh, possibility of, of mass vaccination. So if you put in very restrictive measures, fine, you, you then reduce the number of, uh, of new cases and eventually they start going down. Then when you release those measures, you then expect that you'll potentially have a second uh, wave of cases. Um, and there may be, you know, behavioral aspects to the way in which this happens that mean that people get fatigued and eventually stop complying with, you know, strictures put in place by the government. So we don't know. Mm-hmm. That could play out very differently in different societies. Uh, as I understand from from uh, colleagues in places like Hong Kong, uh, they are achieving a sort of equilibrium where people, you know, are going to work and you know, life is to some extent quite normal, but everyone on public transport is wearing a face mask. There's not a lot of social interaction. You know, people are not going out together after work and so on. But you're not collapsing the economy. And, and it mm. may be that it would be possible. In fact, I would hope that it would be possible for for Western societies to achieve that um, equilibrium, if you like, um, in in a way which suits them. But of course, you know, we're in uncharted territory, so it's very hard to know. Um, in one sense, I'm pleased that the government is is taking advice from behavioural scientists. It's not just about, um, you know, extrapolating from an exponential curve or not. Um, mm-hmm. In another sense, I think they need to be very aware of the deep uncertainties that we have um, when we're dealing with this disease so that in that sense there's sort of yeah there's a there's an element of of wait and see um and in the meantime as your piece is called we need to wash our hands and um not get too close to each other uh that's right um there are all sorts of other difficult calls about whether or not you close schools whether or not you shut down uh sporting events and so on um i i think in a way it's possible to overthink these and to try to be too clever. Um, I, I do have a, a worry about, you know, uh, quote, clever, unquote, interventions, you know, based on sort of patterns of behavior. Um, we have, as it were, you know, some proven examples of societies that have really got on top of this. And my um, suggestion would be that we should try to f- follow those which are proven to work for this specific disease rather than to extrapolate from mm-hmm. models that we've made uh, on different diseases, such as influenza, where, of course, it may turn out that the epidemiology is in some important ways quite different from from what we've understood from other viruses. So, um, you know, that would be my uh, uh, general um as it were, advice on this situation. But no doubt the government will be taking advice from experts in epidemiology and uh, and other uh, fields at the moment. And it's notable, of course, that Chris Whitty, you know, has very um, important and genuine expertise in this, you know, himself. So um, I, I can see there's a rationale to the current sort of plan for, for, for the government. But, um, you know, other rationales are available. And maybe it's too much to start talking about the United States, but presumably it could be 
a lot worse there than it is well yes. is already in some parts of western europe and or, or might be in because of the things that they that not having a, a health service and the testing capacity and all the rest of it that that's exactly right so um you could argue that you know the uk government ought to follow different medical and epidemiological advice you know clearly other governments are taking a different view um who, who knows who's right it, it, we we don't know any of us who's no. at the moment. Um, that's a, a completely different situation from simply not taking any medical advice at all, um, which is uh, close to the position that seems to have occurred, at least in the early phase uh, in the United States. Um, the uh, rollout of testing there has been extraordinarily slow. Um, and, you know, people have had to estimate the size of the epidemic, for example, in Washington by looking at subtle mutations in the genomes of viruses that have been isolated from patients, um, which is, is, I mean, it's quite extraordinary that you would have to do this. I mean, this is sort of the, um, how can I put this? It would be a, a little bit like, you know, trying to discover the tube map by using archaeology or something like that. It, it, it would be extraordinary. Um, I'm not sure that that's quite the, the right analogy to use, but, but you know, you're doing something very difficult in order to piece together in a very approximate way something that you ought to have had an immediate handle on straight away. Yeah, yeah. And presumably, I mean, something like Trump's introduces travel ban, no flights to the US from many European countries except the UK and Ireland. Given that there's already community spread within the United States, treating it as a foreign virus that could come in on planes from Europe is shutting the stable door, isn't it? It's based measure at all. I mean, you, you could argue that there shouldn't be flights coming out of Italy, but the fact is there aren't. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, that, you know, I, I, I think this is posturing, uh, essentially. Yeah. Um, now, of course, at a, lo a more local level, there, are, will, there will be, you know, competent health authorities that, yeah, absolutely. for example, New York City and and other places that, that will be doing their best to get a grip on this. Um, but it, it will, they will be hampered by um, uh, an amazing failure of the, of the national response, uh, which is probably, you know, has many factors to it, not least that uh, funding for this, um, uh, for the CDC for this was, was cut some years ago, um, which is looking like an extremely bad decision right now. Uh, cut, I must say, by the, the Trump administration. Yeah. So, you know, the, the situation there is is pretty bad. Um, and, of course, this is just one reason why it's unrealistic to think that the, the virus is going to be contained and, until we have a, 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 you know, a, an effective vaccine that we can roll out. Um, it, it, it's notable uh, that in Germany they've done a, a very large amount of testing um, the, at the moment, the case fatality rate is very low. Um, in uh, France, they haven't quite rolled out quite so many tests, and the case fatality rate is much higher. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. You know where we are um, shortly. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Rupert, very much. I will actually say one other thing. Okay. So we're all learning a lot about this virus, and uh, a lot of people who have expertise in virology who are not themselves corona virologists mm -hmm. are getting into this right now um i think there's a reluctance from colleagues and i understand that to make uh, statements to the media 
because uh, as scientists, we usually feel that we want to be really a absolute top expert on the particular subject before we make any kind of pronouncement on it. And, and that, I think, is absolutely right. In this situation, nobody's really a top expert on this because there just isn't um, there just isn't the experience. And the problem is if we collectively as scientists all sort of wait until we have, you know, the fine grained detail of every answer, then what will happen is the airways will be filled up with people who've got no idea what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need to be in a situation where that does not occur. So this is why for my piece, I was extremely careful as far as possible to check with as many colleagues as I could uh, who have experience of, you know, the situation in China, the situation in the United States and in the UK, um, you know, before I was happy with, with the piece. And I'm very grateful to those uh, colleagues for coming back so quickly um, with important and very constructive comments on the piece. Um, and uh, I, I say this by way of caveat, obviously, I'm talking to you now, or I'm not sitting around with five other virologists telling me, oh, actually, you got this right, you got this wrong, maybe you should have phrased it like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, we collectively as scientists are dealing with a lot of uncertainty and, you know, doing our best to get it right. Um, I'm speaking not because I think I've got all the answers, but because I think I might at least have some idea of where those answers lie. Thank you, Rupert, very much. And thank you very much for having me. You can read Rupert's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Colin Burrow's review of Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, Richard Lloyd Parry's Akihito and the Sorrows of Japan, the last of this year's LRB Winter Lectures, Abigail Green on Christopher Clarke's Time and Power, and James Butler on the BBC.